And while the children are going, would the rest of you please turn in your Bibles with me one more time to the book of Exodus, all the way to the last chapter, chapter 20, I'm sorry, chapter 40, because I should know my book of Exodus better than that, chapter 40, have that open before you, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for speaking to us and doing it in such a way that as we open this book, as we read it, as we hear the words of it, we can know that this is your word. So Lord, I pray that you would guide us in our living by your word. Nourish us by your word. Father, give us light. Give us life according to your word. Father, we would pray that you would make your word to be once again living and active for your people. I pray that you would help me to be a faithful messenger. Pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin this morning by asking you kind of a strange question. If someone were to come up to you and ask you, what's your favorite word, what would you say? I know it's an odd question. We're used to, what's your favorite food? Or, what's your favorite color? Or who's your favorite quarterback? I know there's a little tension around that these days. But let me ask you, what's your favorite word? For me, I'm pretty sure it's dad. Now, I know it's Mother's Day, moms. Um, We are so grateful for you moms. Happy Mother's Day to you, but moms, you're going to have to translate what I'm about to share appropriate to your role. I found out that dad was my favorite word several years ago now. I was on a solo road trip out west. My three small children were home with their mom, and I stopped at a truck stop to get some gas for the van. It was somewhere, as best I can recall, in northern, in North Dakota. And I was out there filling up my van, and it was just pouring rain. So I'm under one of those big canopies. I'm looking out there. I realize that in a few minutes, I've got to run through that to get to the building. So I finished pumping gas, and I knew I was going to get absolutely soaked. But I took off full stride, and halfway to the door, I hear this little girl's voice behind me say, Daddy. And I just stopped in my tracks. And I turned around, my heart wide open. Now, obviously, she wasn't talking to me. She was calling her own dad. But I had this immediate, visceral reaction to that word. I learned in that moment the power of that word in my life and exactly how much that word had come to mean to me. 
Now, my kids don't call me daddy anymore. It's dad now, but I'm pretty sure it's still my favorite word. Now, I'm sharing that because I was thinking this past week, what's the Bible's favorite word? What's the Bible's best word of all? And I suppose we could all make suggestions. We might each have our own choice, and we could have a very interesting discussion debating the merits of our particular choice. But I'm going to suggest something this morning as my candidate, what I believe is the Bible's best word. But first, let me read the last five verses of Exodus, chapter 40, starting at verse 34. You follow along. This is God's Word. Exodus, chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all all their journeys. We've been in this book of Exodus now for almost three months. We've seen so much truth about God and about Jesus as we've looked here into the rich depths of this book. Its main message has emerged time and again. This message of God rescuing and forming for himself a people. This is what God does. He saves people and he brings them into a close personal relationship with him. And all throughout this book, we've heard God say to Israel, you are my people and I am your God. I will be with you. I'm not going to be some remote, kind of far away deity. I'll be near you, with you, your God. God makes this point so emphatically in this book. You are my people, I am your God, and I intend to dwell with you. And now we see here at the end of the book this dramatic moment, this, this moment making this dramatic statement, the culmination of all of the elaborate preparation that we've seen in these later chapters of Exodus with all of these detailed instructions about the tabernacle and God in his glory now coming and occupying the tabernacle. And it's all about him being there with his people. I remember hearing maybe 20 some years ago, I was at a conference, I was listening to a message by James Montgomery Boyce, who was then the senior pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And in that message, he made this statement. He said, glory is the Bible's best word to describe the dazzling magnificence of God. I remember hearing that and thinking, that is really helpful. That is profound. Glory is the Bible's best word to describe the dazzling magnificence of God. I've used that line many times since then, but while glory 
might be the Bible's best word to describe the dazzling magnificence of God. I don't think it's the Bible's best word overall. For me, the Bible's very best word is Emmanuel. God with us. That's what this passage, that's what the tabernacle, that's what the Exodus is all about. God forming a people and then dwelling with them. And that's what I want us to see as we close out our time in Exodus this morning. Now, let me explain something that I think might make it a little easier for you when you get around to reading those chapters at the end of the book of Exodus. They are, chapters 35 through 40, there is in those chapters a, a remarkably just close parable parallel with what we see in chapters 25 through 31. Let me just show you so you can see exactly what I mean. Look back at chapter 25 for just a moment. Exodus chapter 25, and just look at the headings there in your Bible. The Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, the golden lampstand. Look at verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Verse 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Verse 31, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Now flip over to chapter 37 and look at verse 1. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Verse 10, he also made the table of acacia wood. Verse 17, he also made the lampstand of pure gold. And it's like that, that parallel with everything else. The bronze altar, the bronze basin, the courtyard, all the priestly garments. What was covered back then is covered again here. But there is one very significant difference. Look back again at chapter 25 at those verses I just pointed out a moment ago. Chapter 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Verse 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Verse 31, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Look at chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle. Verse 7, you shall also make curtains of goat's hair. And that's the way it goes, and it continues all the way through those chapters. Just about every paragraph begins with those three words, you shall make. Now flip back to chapter 37 and notice the difference. Verse 1, Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Verse 10, he also made the table of acacia wood. Verse 17, he also made the lampstand of pure gold. Verse 25, he made the altar of incense. And on it goes, paragraph after paragraph, starting with those three words, and he made. And all throughout this section, you hear this refrain over and over again, just as the Lord commanded. Seventeen times everything that was made was made just as the Lord had commanded. All the way through until you come to chapter 39, verse 32. Go with me there. Chapter 39, verse 32. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished, and the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its utensils, its hooks, 
its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the covering of tanned ram skins, the goat skins, and the veil of the screen, the ark of the testimony with its poles and the mercy seat, the table with all its utensils and the bread of the presence, the lampstand of pure gold and its lamps with the lamps set and all its utensils and the oil for the light, the golden altar, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense and the screen for the entrance of the tent, the bronze altar and its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court. You see the meticulous detail, its cords and its pegs and all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle for the tent of meeting, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord had commanded, so had they done it. Then Moses blessed them. So, the tabernacle is done. All of the parts are made and ready, so we are ready now for this final chapter, this culminating moment. Let's look at it. Chapter 40, you follow right along. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. That was precisely the same day of the Exodus. And you shall put on it in the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the, temp the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle, you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it, and you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout the generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil. 
and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Notice this. The presence of the Lord is so intense, so occupying that place that Moses is not able to go in because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from, from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, I want us to see just two things here this morning. First, God means his presence with his people to be uninterrupted. Some of you really need to hear that this morning. God means his presence with his people to be uninterrupted. And secondly, God means his presence to be known by his people. God means his presence to be uninterrupted. God means his presence to be known. Let's look at each of those one at a time. First, God means his presence with his people to be uninterrupted. Look at verses 36 and 37 again. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle and the people of Israel would set out, but if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. In other words, the presence of God was the number one determining factor for them in how they were to live. That was the thing that God wanted to control their living. This was the thing that was to be the most important factor. His presence, it was to be maintained and treasured all the time to move when God hadn't moved was to forfeit God's presence and all that he meant in that. And to stay when God moved was to forfeit God's presence and all that God meant for them to enjoy in that. God was now with his people and he meant his presence to be an uninterrupted reality in their lives. Look at that phrase that gets repeated there, the beginning of verse 36 throughout all their journeys. And at the end of verse 38, throughout all their journeys, the exact same phrase. Listen, Bible repetitions underline Bible priorities. Important things get repeated. I mean, this is something God wants us to hear and pay attention to throughout. That means at every point, not just not just certain points, but at all points, like the scary ones and the mundane ones and the difficult ones and the happy ones. God's presence throughout, and notice, throughout all 
not just some of your journeys, not just 50% of them, not even 90% of them, throughout all your journeys, every journey, the entire journey. Or we could say, every day, the entire day. Listen, if you belong to God in Christ, that's yours as well. One of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples was, I am with you always to the end of the age. And to make sure that we don't make the mistake of thinking that that doesn't apply to us, the writer of Hebrews comes along and says, he has said to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now sometimes we can feel like God's not with us, right? Christians have experienced that all throughout history. I imagine you have felt that a time or two. Where is God? I don't feel God's presence. We can begin to relate to those places in the Psalms where we hear things like, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 10. God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. Why have you forgotten me? Psalm 42. Why have you rejected me? Psalm 43. Why do you hide your face? Psalm 44. There's a reason why those are in our Bibles. And again, why do you hide your face from me? Psalm 88. We can feel this at times and for a variety of reasons, which is why it is really important, Christian, that you anchor yourself in the promises of God that you know how to steady yourself with truth, or I should say, you know how to let God steady you with His voice speaking truth to your heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin in unbelief. And God's word has said, I will never leave you. I think I've shared this with you before. when I was just a little guy, maybe six or seven years old, I was a mischievous little boy. I could not sit still. I had a Sunday school teacher who was very patient with me. And on one particular Sunday, as we're eagerly dashing out the door, I hear her call my name, Mike. And I turn around, I see her do one of these. Come here. I thought, oh, great. And she said, hold out your hand. And I held out my hand, and she did this. I will never leave you. And then she folded up my hand, and she said to me, that's a promise from God, and you can take that with you wherever you go. And I've never forgotten that. I have held that promise close all my life since then. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, and when you go look it up this afternoon, read verse 6 as well. That's what God is saying right here to his people. I will never leave you. I'll be with you throughout all your journeys. God means his presence to be uninterrupted in the life of his people. Now, second, God means his presence to be known by his people. God means his presence to be known. Look at verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, 
Look at this. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The tabernacle had been built. All of the elaborate instructions had been carefully followed. That's what verse 33 tells us. Look there again. He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. The only thing missing was the one thing that everybody was waiting for. And that was not something that Moses could make happen. But then, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You, you know, the people had seen glimpses of God's glory before. They'd seen it in that pillar of cloud and that pillar of fire that had protected them from Pharaoh's army and guided them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. They had seen it on the summit of Mount Sinai and all that fire and smoke. Moses had had a little glimpse of it in that burning bush, but neither Moses nor the Israelites had seen the glory like this. In all of this amazing power and radiance, this visible manifestation of the invisible and majestically awesome God in their midst. You know, there was something I wanted to show you last week, and I just didn't have time to show you. But I've got time now. Look back with me at chapter 33. It's right after that whole golden calf debacle chapter 33, verse 7. There is this kind of editorial, unexpected comment right in the middle of that story about the tent of meeting. Look at chapter 33, verse 7. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, that is not a reference to the tabernacle. I know that that can be confusing because later the tabernacle is called the tent of meeting. We saw that in chapter 40. But this is before the tabernacle was built. There was an earlier, kind of more rudimentary form of the tent of meeting. And the thing I want you to notice is that it was outside the camp. Did you notice that? Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. But here, with the tabernacle, God tells Moses to put it right in the middle, right in the middle of the camp. That's where he wants it. That's where he intends to be, so that everybody can see it, this visible manifestation of his presence, that cloud and that fire. You ever stop and think about that cloud and fire thing? I mean, what is this? Why these two things? Well, in one sense, it's so obvious we, we just don't even think about it. It's hard to see a flame of fire in the middle of the day under the bright noon sun. And it's hard to see a cloud in the pitch black of night. And God wants this visible manifestation of his presence in the sight of all the people all the time. It was probably a single thing, a cloud within which was this burning brightness so that it looked like a cloud during the day and it looked like a pillar of fire at night. You know, sometimes we can wish we had something like that something tangible, something 
perceivable with our senses that we could actually see and feel so that when, when people came up to us and said, you believe in God, all we'd have to do is go, yeah, like, look. Or when we doubted, all we'd have to do is look, visible manifestation of God. And, and then I think of Jesus' words to his disciples who were grieved when he told them that he was going away and he said, it's actually going to be better for you that I go away. Better? How could it possibly be better for us that you go? And Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to give you something better for you to know and experience my presence with you all the time. Because now you've got to be with me in a room. I will be with you all the time immediate fellowship all the time uninterrupted communion with me God means his presence to be known by his people fellowship with him relationship with him him close by there so I can be interacting with him all the time uninterrupted communion with God friends this is the truth that God's Word wants us to hear this morning this is how God is toward his people. Yes, he's all of the things that we've seen in this great book. Rescuer, warrior, promise maker, promise keeper, provider, director, forgiver, merciful forgiver. But shot through it all, over it all, God as the one who dwells with his people. God who is near with us. Emmanuel. I mean, here is God, think of this. Here is God, holy, high and exalted, transcendent, powerful, even frightening at times. I mean, this is part of a right understanding of God. You remember what, what the people of God said at Mount Sinai? Moses, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us lest we die. That God, that Majestic, fearsome God says, I am the high and exalted one who comes low to be with you. And how does he do that? Well, here he does it with fire and cloud in a tabernacle. But remember, this is just a shadowy copy of the reality. This, this tabernacle and this visible manifestation of God's presence is just a part of that big finger pointing us ahead to Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he dwells with his people. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. With us. I mean, this is what... This is what Matthew tells us in the opening chapter of his gospel after announcing the birth of Christ. He says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew says, which means God with us. The word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. Do you hear that? Glory. 
the Bible's best word to describe the dazzling magnificence of God in Christ, who is called Emmanuel, the Bible's best word, God with us, in Jesus. Who now dwells where? Yes, at the right hand of the Father, but also with us all the time. Listen to this. I have not seen this like this before until this past week. I don't know how many times I've read these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, listen to this, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Christ is there, the cornerstone of the building. He's there. And then Paul goes on to say, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together. Stones, Peter calls us living stones, connected to the cornerstone. And then he ends into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. Yes, dwelling in you and with you personally, our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, and dwelling in us together, this dwelling place, the body of Christ, not this building, but a people, God's people, and God with us. Friends, we really need to get this. I obviously don't know exactly where every one of you are spiritually this morning. Maybe you are sitting here this morning just fully engaged. Even right now, having heard this word, rejoicing in the, the wonder of this truth, God with us, wanting to be with us, known by us. Maybe you're here this morning, a believer, but not fully engaged. You're kind of standing over here, you know, the truth's over there, you're alongside of it, and you look at it and, you know, you agree with it more or less, but you're not fully engaged with this truth. It's not registering fully. It's not truly and deeply known by you. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're really struggling to believe. Maybe you're here this morning and you completely disbelieve all this stuff. Can I just say to every one of us, this really matters. It is so important that we get this. God wants us to get this. Christianity is fundamentally connection with God. That's what Jesus does. And that's why he had Moses. That's why God had Moses end this book the way he does. This was written for our instruction. God wants his people to see. He means us to be in close, meaningful relationship with us nearer to us so that we know he's there and we can be with him and have fellowship with him. I mean, here is Exodus chapter 40, the last chapter of this great book, reminding us in powerful fashion that God wants to be with his people. And he wants us to know he's there with us. I believe it's the Bible's best word.
God with us. Emmanuel. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word to us, and we pray as we, as we pray so regularly, God, preserve your word in our minds and in our hearts and make it bear fruit in our lives. God, we do not want to be a people who are unaware that you are our God and that you are near, close by, right here. God, help us to live according to what we know to be true. Father, thank you that at times you give us a greater sense of your awareness. But help us to be people who walk by faith, not by sight. Someday, God, we will see you face to face. Until then, help us to be faithful and live according to your promise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.